Welcome to the Highway Church Podcast. We're excited for you to join us today. To find out more about us, visit highway.com.au. Great. So I'm going to take on something tonight. I might have taken off. I might be, I might be biting off more than I could chew. We're going to find out, right? So here's my, here's my goal, is that in 30 minutes, I might need a few more than that, but we'll see. In 30 minutes, um, you will understand the entire Bible um, in five words, yeah, You'll understand the revolutionary nature of the cross and where that fits into history and why Jesus mattered so much. Let's see if we can do that in about 30 minutes, right? And so if you're, if you're one of the young people or, or, or middle-aged or older people, if you're thinking, you know what? Um, I, I don't really know what to do with the Bible. It's so, it's so big and confusing sometimes and one guy thinks one thing and another, another guy thinks another. Well, what's, what do you do with all of that? Well, I'm gonna see if I could put it all together. All right, Romans chapter five, verse Eight, revolutionary idea Paul is giving the people in Romans about the nature of God revealed in Christ. This is what it says. But God showed us that he loved us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Revolutionary claim that Christianity made, that what makes Christianity unique is Christianity celebrates a God revealed in Jesus Christ that acted first. Every other God on the planet at that time never acted first. You had to go to their temple, do their ritual, do their moment, give their gift, and then maybe that God would act on your behalf. Not this God. This God acts first and humbly consents in love to you and then humbly waits for you to consent Back. In other words, this God is consensual, not coercive. This is a massive, massive paradigm shift in the history of the world that was actually more revolutionary than you think because, because you grew up in Christianity your whole life. You might be thinking, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. I memorized that in Sunday school. But if we look at where Jesus came from in terms of where the world was, this is unbelievable. So let me make the statement about the Bible. This is gonna sound very academic, but don't fret. I'm gonna say something really simple after that to explain it. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of what people thought God was leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. Okay, now, whoo, so come on with it. Now, if you go, what, 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 yeah, what, hey, Jim, okay, here we go, ready? Here's a simpler way to say that. Although God does not change, the more people understood about God, the closer he got and the nicer he got. And that's good because if God's getting closer and meaner, that's bad, right? But what you see in the Bible is not a static record of God, but a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God and the risen Christ. What does that mean? It means that although God does not change, what people thought about him changed and all got written in this library of books called the Bible. And I could summarize it this way, that the more they understood about God, the closer he got and the nicer he got. So let's deal with those two statements. The more they understood about God, the closer he got. And the more they understood about God, the nicer he got. Let's do the closer one first. Now, to understand the revolutionary nature of the God revealed in Jesus, we gotta go all the way back to Abraham. And we gotta understand in Abraham's world, where did God live? Like there was no temples, there was no scriptures, there was none of that. If you wanted to communicate with God, where did God live? And the answer was very simple, it's just up. Okay, he lived in the sky, right? Now, we know from scripture that Abraham was a sun worshiper. Was he a bad guy? No, if your concept is God lives in the sky and you walk outside during the day and you look up in the sky, what is obviously the most powerful thing in the sky? 
the, the sun. So obviously, if God's up there, that must be God. But, but the sun has a problem. Every day, the sun sets. So if you walk out at night and look up at the sky, what's the most powerful thing in the sky? The moon. So the idea was in Abraham's day was that the sun was the God of the day and the moon was the God of the night. And they thought the sun was more powerful until by observation, because you can look straight at the moon and write things down about it, they noticed over a long period of time that the moon goes through a very predictable 28-day cycle. Every 28 days, the moon renews itself. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. New moon, waxing, waning, full moon. It took them a while to work this out, but they thought, wait a minute, hang on. The moon operates on a 28-day cycle. What else in creation operates on a 28-day cycle? Yeah, half the room should know this. Women, yes. It's that, yeah, I can, I can see where the guy at the back's like, hey, Jim, what's he talking about, man? I don't know. Yeah, you know that, you know that thing that comes around roughly once a month, right? That, and, and if it doesn't, you like panic and go to the chemist shop? Like, yeah. So, so here was the conclusion, right? The conclusion was, the moon must be the god of fertility and the god controlling the women's moods. How powerful is this moon? Because when the full moon comes, you better get out of the cave. But when the new moon comes, it's gonna be a good night tonight. That's the idea. And so you had the sun is the god of the day, the moon is the god of the night, but he lives, God lives up in the sky. Now, if you're an ancient Sumerian farmer, what do you desperately need to come out of the sky so you'll live? Rain. So the idea was is, what must we do to appease the gods of the sky? Because they obviously control the rain. Why? Because they live in the sky. And where does rain come from? The sky. It's a very primitive idea. I get this. But we're talking about ancient Sumeria here, right? So he says, oh, wait, wait, hang on. Because if God is happy, he'll bring rain. If God is ticked, he'll withhold rain and we'll die. And if God's really ticked, he'll send a lot of rain and all of us will die. This was a problem. So what do we do to appease the gods of the sky? Now, you're gonna have to help me preach the rest of the sermon, okay? All right, so for the rest of the sermon, when I say, in Abraham's day, God lived, we're gonna all together with a lot of gusto say up and do our thumb like that, all right? So everybody ready? We're gonna practice that, ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived, up. Okay, way more together and a little bit more gusto. Ready? Let's try that again. In Abraham's day, God lived, up. All right, oh yes, that. Exactly that, ready? Let's try that again just because you nailed it, ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. <laughs> he lived up in the sky. What do we do for the gods in the sky to get rain? We'll cover that in a second. But for right now, all I want you to remember is that in Abraham's day, God lived up. 430 years later, a guy named Moses comes along. And Moses is like, no, God doesn't live up. That's stupid. And ridiculous, God lives in a tent in the middle of camp because that's less ridiculous. So he builds a tent, 45 foot long by 15 foot wide by 15 foot high, covered in animal hair. Here's what he did. He said, God lives in there. Of course, Moses' advisors are like, bro, you gotta be careful with that because if people actually walk in there, they're gonna realize it's just furniture. He's like, I know what we'll do. We'll tell them if they walk in there, they'll die. Of course, that was sort of weird. That never happened, that's one. And two, um, it was a mobile tent. So like, what if you were like in charge of setting it up and tearing it down? You put like the last stake in the Holy of Holies. What, like, what did you get? Like a 60 second alarm? Get out of there, beep, beep, beep. Nonetheless, 
It was still a primitive idea, but it was a good idea because God was getting closer in their concepts. Did God ever change? No. But, but, but when you move God from far away in the sky to a tent in the middle of camp, that is a step in the right direction. So for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Moses' day, God lived in a tent, and we're gonna point like that, point down like that. So let's practice, ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, lived in a tent. Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, lived in a tent. Then years later, a guy named David comes along. David's like, no, God doesn't live in a tent. That's ridiculous. He needs an actual building because that's less ridiculous. You see, David had a problem. David was the head of state. So when David went to other countries, their kings would say, let me show you our God's temple. And they were these huge magnanimous things. David, then they would come visit Israel and they're like, David, where's your God's temple? And David's like, he's in a tent. <laughs> So David's like, listen, these people are gonna think they can attack us because their gods are bigger. And we're not giving glory to our God properly. If pagans can build buildings to glorify their God, how much more should we? So I realize Solomon ended up finishing it, but Solomon's too hard to say. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna say, in David's day, God lived in a temple. And we're gonna point up like that, just sort of like that way. Okay, so let's practice, ready? In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, lived in a tent. David's day, lived in a temple. God's getting closer. He goes from way far in the sky to a tent in the middle of camp to a place you know exactly where God is. Then a guy named Jesus comes along. And Jesus, they started saying ridiculous things like, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. The word dwelt there is tabernacled. It's a, it's a play on words. In other words, the presence of God you thought was in the tent is actually walking around teaching us how to live. So in Jesus' day, they thought that God lived in flesh. And so for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Jesus' day, God lived in flesh, we're gonna tap our hand, all right? So let's practice that. In Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. Let's, let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, lived in a tent. David's day, lived in a temple. In Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. So from Abraham to Jesus, you have this concept all recorded in this beautiful narrative that we call the Bible, where people thought God lived up, and then they thought God lived in a tent, and then they thought God lived in a temple, and then finally they're like, hang on, the God revealed in Christ is closer than we ever imagined. The God revealed in Christ is actually willing to engage the brokenness of our story, even if that means he suffers himself, in order to make a better narrative and teach us how to live. So as the Bible progresses, God never changed, but they, their understanding of God got closer and closer and closer and closer and closer, from up to tent to temple to flesh. Then a guy named Paul comes along. And actually, Peter, James, John, all the guys that wrote the New Testament, they made an even more radical claim. They said things like this. Don't you know that you are the temple of the living God? Jesus hinted at this in John 7, where he stood on the steps of the temple and said, hey, the same fullness of the Spirit of God that you've been taught is in the middle of this building. It's now being offered to everyone who's thirsty. So in Paul's day, God lived in us. So we're gonna, so for the rest of the sermon, when I say in Paul's day, God lived in, we're gonna say us and do this. Because it's not just, uh, it's, 
us. One new man is what Paul called it. Let's review. Ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Moses' day, he lived in a tent. In David's day, he lived in a temple. In Jesus' day, he lived in flesh. And in Paul's day, he lives in us. God's getting closer. The whole Bible in 10 minutes. <laughs> That the Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God leading to the final revelation of God there is in Christ. What does that mean? It means that the more they understood about God, the closer he got from up to tent, to temple, to flesh, to us. But that's not the gospel if he doesn't get nicer. So let's go back. What we also see is that God is getting nicer. Let's go back to Abraham. Ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived up. Abraham's day, God lived up. And you desperately need rain. And you gotta appease whoever lives up there to bring rain. So here's what would happen. If I was to ask someone in ancient Sumeria, what must I do to please God? What must we do to appease the gods so that they bring rain? And here was the answer, and we're gonna repeat this together for the rest of the sermon, because you're gonna have to help me preach, right? It's a very simple answer, but it's, it's sort of cool. We're gonna shrug our shoulders and go, I don't know, all right? All right, so, so in Abraham's day, God lived up. What'd you have to do to please God? Yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Let's try that again. What'd you have to do to please God? Yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know. And what do you do when you don't know? You make it up. And if you make it up with enough gusto, it catches on. So here's what happened in ancient Sumerian culture. In ancient Sumerian culture, if you wanna read a great, and not a good book, a great history book on this, there's a history book called The Gifts of the Jews by Thomas Cahill, and he explains ancient Sumeria so well. That's for the nerds. Back to this. In Abraham's day, God lived up, and you didn't know what to do to please God. So here's what they said in ancient Sumerian culture, that you can please God with two ways. One way is by self-mutilation. So here's what they said. If there's a drought, you've obviously ticked God off. So if, if I said, listen, you've ticked God off. What must I do to please God? You can get right with God by cutting. Now, what's the problem with that? If I say, you can get right with God by cutting, what's the question? Well, okay, what must I cut? And how much of what must I cut? And the answer was, everybody together, I don't know. Because what if you do 10 cuts? But the magic number is 11. And you go to bed wondering, have I done enough? So in one sect of ancient Sumerian culture, they said, just cut till it rained. They lived in Iraq. Right? You never knew. The second thing they had to do in ancient Sumerian culture to appease the gods was to sacrifice. Again, that's problematic. If I say, hey, you can get right with God by sacrificing. What's your question? Okay, what must I sacrifice? And more importantly, how much of what must I sacrifice? And the answer was, everybody together? No, I don't know. So what they started doing, they started sacrificing more and more and more and more, and it was still not raining. So what they did is they made a rule. Here's what, here's what they said. The gods of the sky cannot possibly deny it if we give our best. So everybody in ancient Sumeria has to give their most prized thing, which in their world was their firstborn child. So it became a longstanding custom. When you gave birth to your firstborn child, you had to offer them as a sacrifice to the gods of the sky in order to guarantee rain for everybody. So in Abraham's day, what they did was they mutilated and they sacrificed to the point where they had no idea how much to do. Now, it's in that historical context that God shows up to Abraham. And God says, hello, Abraham. 
My name is El Shaddai. That just means God Almighty. I love the grace of God with Abraham. In other words, he doesn't show up and explain anything deep. He's like, you got a bunch of gods. You gotta be wondering who's in charge. That's me, I'm El Shaddai. Abraham's like, well, at least you're speaking. El Shaddai, what do you want from me? And of course, God meets Abraham exactly where Abraham thinks God is and then moves him forward. If you don't hear me say anything else, please hear me say this. God is always humble enough to meet people where they think he is and then move them forward to a better version of that narrative, okay? So, so Abraham says, what do you want from me? Now remember in Abraham's day, what did you have to do? You had to mutilate and you had to sacrifice. So God says, okay, I want you to circumcise yourself with a rock. In other words, if you need to self-mutilate, let's do it, right? That's an odd command. Abraham's 90. So God's first command to a 90-year-old man is pick up a rock, swing hard, don't miss. That's weird. You ever seen a 90-year-old man? His hand shakes. His eyesight's not real good. You imagine that scene? Hey, Sarah, say a prayer for me, sweetheart. I'm gonna try to get this in one go. This is gonna hurt real bad, I got a feeling, right? It's weird. It's weird. But for us, see, Circumcision is what? It's the law, it's barbaric. It's like, why would you do that? But in that day, circumcision was the nicest, gracious, kindest thing God could have ever done. Why? Because in Abraham's day, how much did you have to cut? I don't know. So God shows up and says, okay, you think you need to cut? We'll let you cut. But if we're gonna cut, we're gonna circumcise. Why is that gracious? Well, how many times could you ever possibly circumcise yourself? The answer's once, right? People are like, I don't know, like, what? Right, right, right. Just seventh grade anatomy, right, right? Yeah, once. Like, if you could circumcise yourself twice, I, I don't know, you demand, I don't know. Anyway, so, <clears throat> so Abraham moves the world from infinite cutting to one-off. God's getting nicer. Second thing God says to Abraham is he says, I want you to sacrifice. Now, in Abraham's world, what did you have to sacrifice? Your kid. So in the Bible, God says, I want you to kill your kid, which is weird, right? Like if I said, look, you need to kill your kid, you'd be shocked. You'd be like, what, why, that's crazy. What did I smoke? It'd be all kinds of questions. But in the Bible, Abraham's like, yeah, kill my kid. That sounds normally, that sounds absolutely normal, right? Why? Because in their world, that's what they did. Abraham doesn't ask why, he doesn't ask how. It says, so Abraham took Isaac to a high place. Why would you go to a high place? Because God lived up. And so for the first time in the history of any civilization, in any writings, from anywhere in the world, a God stops the sacrifice and provides a new one. And here's God's idea. Hey, Abraham, instead of killing kids, let's kill animals. You're probably not ready for you don't need to kill anything to please me, but let's go, instead of killing children, let's kill animals instead. Now, if you're the first person to get the idea, let's kill animals instead of children, is that a good idea or a bad idea? That's a really good flipping idea. Is that a word from God? You better believe it is. Is that inspired? Absolutely. Is that the final word of God? No, the final word of God is the risen Christ. But that's a giant leap in the right direction. So Abraham gets this revelation. We can kill animals instead of children. He comes down off the mountain and Isaac's still alive. What are Abraham's neighbors thinking? Oh no, drought's gonna come, flood's gonna, no, 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 Abraham, get back up there and kill your kid. It's not nice, I'm serious, it's not nice. We all had to do it, our grandpappies had to do it, our great, great, hey, it's in our verses, it's in our websites, it's in our pamphlets, it's in our fundamental truths. You, hey, you get back up there and kill your kid. Abraham's like, no, no, God's nicer than you think. 
and we can kill animals instead of children. There's a Jewish history book that tells another side of the story, which is beautiful. It says that Abraham was so moved by the compassion of El Shaddai to spare Isaac that he finally got the guts to take an ax and he destroyed all of his idols in his room, in his worship room of idols. He destroyed all of them except one. And he left the one standing and he put the ax in his hand. So the next day when Abraham's father came into worship, he's like, Abraham, what happened in here? And Abraham said, there must've been a fight amongst the gods and that one must've won. <laughs> <clears throat> so Abraham gets thrown out of town <laughs> and he goes on a journey and it ends up starting a family. Now, who was God to Abraham? His name was El Shaddai. Let's try that again with some gusto. Who was God to Abraham? El Shaddai. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Who's his God? El Shaddai. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Who's his God? El Shaddai. Jacob has 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 12 children have 12 children. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 144 kids have 12 kids. Who's their God? El Shaddai. The math is getting too hard. Who's their God? El Shaddai. 20 generations later, there is no God but El Shaddai. No other name other than El Shaddai. It's in our verses. It's in our pamphlets. It's in our websites. It's in our fundamental truths. There is no God but El Shaddai. Then Moses comes along. And he's a premeditated murdering fugitive. He ends up in the wilderness. And God meets him as a burning bush, which is strange. But Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. And in Pharaoh's house, the sun is God. So Moses grew up his whole life believing God was a fire but the kind of fire that would destroy you if you take him off. So just like with Abraham, God meets Moses exactly where Moses thinks God is and makes it a better story. In other words, God's like, you think I'm a fire? I'll be a fire, that's fine. I'll meet you, but if you're paying attention, I'm not even harming the most flammable thing in the desert. I'm not a consuming fire, I'm a refining fire. As the great T.S. Eliot wrote, we only sustain, only suspire, consume by either fire or fire. You will live your whole life terrified of the consuming fire of the sun god Ra, or by faith you'll embrace the loving fire of a, of a loving Yahweh who although he will perfect you, he will never harm you for the bush was not consumed. Now that. <clears throat> now think about the encounter, right? The burning bush says, hello. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Moses' response? Oh, hello, El Shaddai. Why? Who's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? El Shaddai. The burning bush says, no, my name is yud heh vav -Heh. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses argues with a talking bush. Moses says, no, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is El Shaddai. It's in our verses, it's in our pamphlets, it's in our websites, it's in our fundamental truths. The burning bush says, I introduced myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, yud heh vav -Heh, they didn't know me. Now, what's so confusing about this is, if you know anything about Hebrew, yud heh vav -Heh, you can't say it. It, the letters don't go together. It'd be like me saying, my name is <laughs> Come again, What? What? It's not even a word. I know. I know. My name's What does that mean? It means I am what I am. Because that clears it up, right? So Moses comes back to the Israelites. And here's his message after 20 generations. Ready? This did not go well. After 20 generations, he goes, hey, 
I know you've been taught your whole life that God's name's El Shaddai, but I got a new revelation from God and his name isn't just El Shaddai, it's also yud heh vav <laughs> What? yud heh vav Come again, Moses? yud heh vav It's not even a word, I know. But he told me his name was yud heh vav How'd he, where'd he tell you this, Moses? Wilderness. Was anybody else there to witness that? No. How'd he tell you? Talking bush. As if you'd have bought that. And Jewish history tells us, hey, they didn't either. It says Moses really didn't gain credibility till he parted the Red Sea and brought water out of the rock. Then people start thinking maybe he's onto something. So God inspires Moses to write a book called Leviticus. Again, to us, absurdly barbaric. But in that day, Leviticus was the nicest book about God ever written in the history of the world up to that time. Why? Leviticus was the first book in any scripture from any civilization ever that put a limit on sacrifice. Other, but in Abraham's day, how much did you have to sacrifice? I don't know. How much did you have to mutilate? I don't know. Leviticus is like one sacrifice per family per year. You're good. And only one cutting in your life. We're gonna circumcise on the eighth day. That way no one remembers it. And then I forbid you from ever putting markings on your body ever again. Trust me, when he wrote this, he never thought we'd sit around and argue about whether or not it was a sin to have a tattoo. He was talking to people who thought they might have to cut themselves for God to love them. Let's review. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up, okay, way more together and a lot more gusto like at the beginning, ready? In Abraham's day, God lived. Up, sacrifice, I don't know. Mutilation, I don't know. Moses' day, God lives in a tent. Sacrifice, once. Mutilate, once. Let's try that again. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up, sacrifice, I don't know. Mutilate, I don't know. Moses' day, God lived in a tent. Sacrifice, once. Mutilate, once. David's day, God lived in a temple. The rules don't change. Sacrifice, once. Mutilate, once. Then the prophets come along. And guys like Micah, people like that, Micah started saying things like, you know what? What kind of God is grumpy and then gets less grumpy because you killed a bird? That's weird. Just do justly love mercy, walk humbly with God. It'll be okay. Of course, he was a bit ahead of himself and they killed him. That's what happens. And then Jesus comes along. And in Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. Jesus' day, God lives in flesh. And here's what happened with Jesus. Jesus started making God nicer than anyone thought possible. Jesus started calling people forgiven without a sacrifice. I know. It's unbelievable. Like, like there's this one time. There's this guy named Zacchaeus. And he's up a tree. And Jesus says, hey, I wanna eat with you. And it says Zacchaeus was so moved by the compassion of Jesus He said, hey, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And Jesus said, that's it. Salvation has come to this house. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Okay, we're gonna have to practice something else. If I ask if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is yes. All right, so let's practice that. Is Jesus allowed to do that? No sacrifice, no temple visit, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9, and 10, no sinner's prayer. I know it surprises some people anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written, but they did. (laughs) 
What was the only way for Zacchaeus to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Tax collectors. So what does Jesus do? He circumvents the entire system of oppressive power. He sees his heart change and goes, that's enough for me. What? Oh, there's this one time. <laughs> Jesus is at a prostitute's house, which leads to this question. Is Jesus allowed? Yes. <laughs> and what's going on at a prostitute's house in the first century? Business. <laughs> which leads to this question. <clears throat> Would there ever be a worse place to ever run into Jesus ever? Like Jesus is between customers, you know? He's like, right? And the guy comes out of the back room and he's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> hey, man. And it says that Jesus was so kind to the prostitute that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus say? That's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. No sacrifice, no temple visit, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9 and 10, no sinner's prayer. Can you get saved by washing his feet with your hair? Yes. <laughs> and aren't you glad that's not the rule? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yo, my Lord. You imagine, you imagine if, if we all had to get saved the same way, you know, and we all had to watch. I mean, look, with all respect to you, sir, to, to, to wash his feet with your hair would be a three-man job. You'd have to be turned upside down and used like a buffer. <laughs> See, people say Jesus is the only way. Jesus, okay, but Jesus is the only way is far different than my way to Jesus is the only way to Jesus. Right? What you find. Who's, what's the only way for the prostitute to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who's not allowed in the temple? Prostitutes. Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power, sees our heart change and says, that'll do. There's this one time, Jesus is having a really bad day. And he ends up on a cross, right? Which is a really bad day. And, and the, guy, the guy next to him is having an equally bad day. And he can't breathe. And so he only can muster three words. Please remember me. And what does Jesus do? Well, Bo, you better hurry up and say the sinner's prayer. They're not gonna think you're saved in 2021. <laughs> what? You imagine, you imagine if Jesus was some semi-ghettoized evangelical, like, say the prayer. What prayer? It's this prayer they make up in 1830 to help people connect with me, and I dig it. What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's that? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, but you better hurry up, right? <laughs> no. What? What was the only way for that thief to be saved in the first century? Temple ritual. Who can't make it to the temple at this point? him. Jesus circumvents the entire system of oppressive power and he goes, you see his heart change? That'll do. See, Jesus, God in flesh, the full and final way to see God, started making God nicer than ever before. Essentially, Jesus was like, you've heard it said one sacrifice per family per year. How about one sacrifice for the whole world for all time? How about that? And then he started calling people forgiven without a sacrifice or a temple visit because the God ultimately revealed in Christ was nicer than anybody ever thought See, in Jesus' day, how much do you have to sacrifice? None. How much do you have to mutilate? None. Let's review. Ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived. Pretty good. One more time. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up. Sacrifice? I don't know. Mutilation? I don't know. Moses' day, he lives in a tent. Sacrifice? Once. Mutilate? 
once. David's day, he lived in a temple. Sacrifice, once. Mutilate, once. Jesus' day, God lived in flesh. Sacrifice, none. Mutilate, none. God's getting nicer. And the God revealed in Christ is a God that moves first and is nicer than you think. And then the rest of the New Testament, in Paul's day, God lives in us. The rest of the New Testament makes a radical statement. Actually, six different places by four different authors at least. This is what it says, that Jesus was not crucified on Calvary. Jesus was actually crucified before the foundation of the world. In other words, to the New Testament writers, Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. He simply showed us what God was always like from the beginning. And that's better. If you need verses for everything, here we go. Ephesians 1, 4, he was chosen before the foundation of the world. Hebrews 4, 3, Jesus' sacrificial work was completed before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 20, he was crucified before the foundation of the world, but in his last days was made manifest so we could see it. Revelation 13, 8, blessed are those whose names have been written in the book of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1, 9, your salvation was given to you in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. The entire first chapter of 1 John. For we know that all these things have been true since the beginning, but now we have seen it with our own two eyes. And my personal favorite, Hebrews chapter nine. Didn't you know all along it was impossible for the blood of sacrifices to take away your sin, but God simply gave them to you to do because your conscience needed to be appeased and you thought you needed to. For don't you know that Jesus died before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages? Whew. How cool is that? The culmination of the ages. Does that sound like a Jewish theological principle? No, that sounds like a rock festival. Where'd you go last weekend? I went to the culmination of the ages. It was awesome. See, this is very important for the Bible and scripture and the gospel and the cross to make any sense. That Jesus was not inaugurating a new reality about God. Jesus was showing the entire world what God was always like from the beginning. And the New Testament writers were like, oh my goodness, God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. That is the New Testament in one statement. And by the way, that's really the only thing that makes Christianity make any sense. Otherwise, this is the story, ready? Here we go, ready? Tell me the gospel in one paragraph if that's not true. Okay, here we go, ready? Uh... God created the world, and even though he was God, he lacked the foresight to foresee human rebellion. So when humans rebelled, it sort of surprised him. And then he had to rack his God brain as to what to do. And even though he was God, his best idea was to torture and kill his only son by sending him to earth on a suicide mission. And even though the son obeyed the suicide mission, it was still horribly unsuccessful because billions of people are still gonna burn in hell forever with no hope of ever getting out. And God never gets what he wants anyway. Join us. <clears throat> What if the good news is better than that? What if this is the good news? That God created the world because he was God, he was able to force a human rebellion and instead of destroying his creation, he fixed the whole broken thing before it started. And the rest of the story is him showing the creation that he fixed the whole broken thing before it started and creation would not believe it without seeing it. So he loved us enough to engage the story of the broken creation by becoming a man and engaging it and allowing us to murder him to that point so that we would see just how far God loved us since before the foundation of the world. So... One more review, ready? Here we go. In Abraham's day, God lived. Up, sacrifice, 
Mutilation? I don't know. And Moses' day lives in a tent. Sacrifice? Once. Mutilate? Once. David's day God lived in a temple. Sacrifice? Once. Mutilate? Once. Jesus' day God lived in flesh. Sacrifice? None. Mutilate? None. Paul's day God lives in us. And when did it all actually happen? Before the foundation of the world. That God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. And now we finally have the full and final revelation of what that looks like. As John says in 1 John, for we know that all these things have been true since before the foundation of the world. But now we have seen it with our own two eyes. So my brothers and sisters of highway, may we present a more Christ-like gospel. May we present the word of God in a way that is beautiful, progressive, moving. The Bible is not a static record of God. The Bible is a dynamic, progressive, moving revelation of God, leading to the final revelation of God in the risen Christ. And may we be so profoundly connected to Jesus, that Jesus is not somebody to believe in. Jesus is someone to profoundly connect to that should fundamentally shift the way we see the whole world so that the world around us can see our lives before them as an ultimate testimony and witness to what happened before the foundation of the world at the culmination of the ages. Thanks for letting me be here tonight, guys. Grace and peace. <laughs>